If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Warren Bing Evans. Evans served as an Army Ranger in World War II. In this first part of his interview, Captain Evans describes the Rangers, Operation Torch, the invasion of Sicily, almost losing his life, and the nightmares that have haunted him since. We were the first division overseas, one of the first divisions. There was the uh, 34th Division and the 1st Armored Division were the first two divisions overseas in the European theater. The 34th Division that I was a part of was the first federally inducted uh, National Guard unit. It was an old square division, probably 25,000 men. I was in that uh, National Guard unit because I needed spending money when I was in school. I got a dollar a drill, so every 13 weeks I had $13. That was my spending money. Let me tell you that in my company, I had a man who, uh, who was beating several federal indictments for moonshining in Kentucky. I had a man in my outfit who was in from the seminary, a Presbyterian seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I had another man who ran uh, a house of prostitution in New Orleans. Then I had a lot of farm boys from the prairies of South Dakota and uh, Iowa that had grown up hunting, grown up in the harvest fields. So I can't tell you physically what set them apart. I think it was more of a feeling of uh, gung-ho, of uh, esprit de corps, of uh, a certain confidence in themselves a certain spirit of, uh, I can do it. In fact, uh, I've often wished that somebody would ask me about something uh, uh, in the Rangers that uh, has nothing to do with uh, the action we went through. You know, there's so much pathos, uh, humor, fear, politics, and... uh, there, there are so many stories that no one ever will ever hear about. And the men who are living are so filled with those stories, and no one seems to want to hear them. <laughs> you see, we were inducted before war was declared, and we were going to be back in a year, little darling. They didn't even defer us for college because we were going to be back. So that was February 10th. War was declared December 8th. And we went overseas, well, the first week in January of 42, that would be. And so the Rangers became activated in June 19th of 42, but before that time, we were really part of the British commandos under their command. They uh, asked that uh, 
as part of the volunteering program that there was someone who wanted to join a commando-type organization. At that time, the British commandos were quite active uh, with raids on the continent of uh, Europe. And so they wanted a, an American prototype of the British commandos. First thing we heard were that they had to all be volunteers, that they had to be in uh, a very good physical condition, that they were expected to uh, be able to march five or six miles an hour, which was almost unheard of in the American army at that time, that they had to have the right attitude somehow or another. It's hard to put a finger on it, but you knew it when you, you recognized it when you saw it. Have you ever tried to march with a full pack loaded down with ammunition and a gun at a rate of six or seven miles an hour? Do you realize that a four-minute mile is about as fast as a human being can go? Now think about going six or seven miles in an hour. And you're loaded down. You don't, you're not in track shoes and running on a, on a, on a, a flat surface. You're going up and down and we were climbing the hills. And uh, then the last hundred were weeded out when we went across the, the Irish Sea uh, to Glasgow and from Glasgow to Spain Bridge, they call it. Uh, we were probably seven or eight miles from the castle at Aknakir, and you had to go over a mountain to get there. And you had your full gear, everything that you owned, you were carrying. And they went that at the, uh, the, the, the Scots that were leading it at the time were unladen. But those that made it were the ones that they kept. They, they weeded out about a hundred then. That was the way they did it. However, when we got to Agnacare, that's when the really the uh, hard part started. The repelling, the mountain climbing, the swimming the, 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 with loaded gear across the swift uh, Scottish rivers. Uh, we lost some men doing that. They were going to show those Yanks. They were going to weed them out and show them they couldn't do it. And, of course, the Yanks that were left were just as sincere about showing those damn limeys. <laughs> it was, this was the type of thing, the competition between the two of us. I think possibly the common thread would be they can't make it too tough for me. There isn't anything they can throw at me that I can't handle. If they can handle it, I can handle it better than they can. And I think we did wind up breaking about every record the commandos ever set. They were experts, and we were all guys that were pretty good at back alley fighting. Sometimes I think the back alley fighting would probably be uh, just as uh, effective as uh, all of the training. But nevertheless, uh, because they had a, a, an advantage, they, they, they made it as hard for us as they could in every respect. Many of us had been raised, born and raised on the prairie, had never heard of the word repelling down a cliff, a mountain cliff. And so the first time we did that, uh, there were some that uh, height bothered them. But by this time, I don't think there was anything that these guys wouldn't tackle that was thrown at them. I mean, really. 
we knew it was a pretty special outfit, and we knew that they were in the front of almost everything. And I suppose that's one of the appeals of volunteering for this was the fact that uh, that we thought it was time for us to be doing something and that we'd better do our part to end this war. Uh, I think we thought we could uh, win it all by ourselves. At that time, I think that the dangers uh, that uh, were to come were not a part of why we were there. The reason we volunteered was that we felt we weren't doing our part. And there was something we could do and that we could do better than most. And this sounded like the kind of an outfit that could get it done. This was one of the reasons that the Rangers were a hush-hush outfit at the beginning, because at that time, uh, the mothers at home would have really raised Cain if they knew their boys were being trained under live fire. Now they do it more now. On the landings that we had, we've had the paddles shot out of our hands. Uh, we had one man who uh, raised uh, his, well, a part of his anatomy that uh, he shouldn't have, and uh, he received a bullet right through it. Uh, this is the type of thing. I hope he's a good shot. That's really what you were hoping at the time, that, that, that he was a good enough shot so he could get close to you and scare you but not hit you. You wondered that every day you got up uh, in, in the next phase of training. Uh, why did I go for this? Why didn't I stay back where it was comfortable? The same thing that kept me in it from all the way through. Uh, uh, I'm good enough to be good. Part of our training was, uh, of course, in water. The cold Scottish mountain streams are cold. They're the kind of cold that absolutely takes your breath away. I mean, uh, literally. Uh, we had to swim those streams uh, with uh, rifle, ammunition, and uh, Lamont Hochtel was the boy's name, was the first casualty in the Rangers in training. He drowned in that river. We did some. Uh, the landings on the uh, east coast of uh, Scotland uh, that would very much uh, could be compared with the, the landing at Point de Hoc that you're familiar with. And in climbing that, we lost a man or two. Through Going through minefields, we lost uh, a man or two. Uh, this type of thing. We felt that what we were being trained for, that it was something we'd better know. We'd better know the feeling. We'd better know what it's like. And uh, it'd be better to learn this way than to learn all of a sudden under fire and have it take you by surprise and have you break down because of it. And if you could live through it, the training under live fire, why, you could fight through it. I don't think history has uh, related the fact that there were there was a Dieppe raid before there was a Dieppe raid that was aborted because of the weather. At this time, I was a first sergeant of E Company in the Rangers, and as first sergeant, I put myself on that detail to go on the Dieppe raid, and uh, I could name you the fellows that were there, but I don't imagine you're interested. But nevertheless. We were uh, went on the first Dieppe raid, and it was aborted, and we came back. 
Now then, in between that time, I'd been made uh, command sergeant major, and I couldn't put myself on the detail. But 10% of the ranger force was. In other words, of the 500 men, there were 50 on the Dieppe raid. So we were not at full strength. We were supposed to be observers to see how it was done. But they got into the, the action plenty, and we lost men on that, the same as it was primarily a Canadian show. The Canadians uh, uh, did well, but they weren't trained. They didn't have enough of the commando training to have accomplished what they wanted to accomplish on the Dieppe raid, although it was, I think, was considered a success. We were trying to learn what it was like to make a raid on uh, the continent to uh, spearhead an invasion because we knew it was coming up. We didn't realize that that's what we were there for. And I think they were also looking for, well, now I'm going to what I've read and not what I know. So I'll, I think, however, they were looking for uh, facts about radar. There was a landing at Arzu, North Africa. That was the first, really the first action for the Americans. The Dieppe raid, there were observers, even though they were 10% of our, our group. Arzu was the first action uh, on a, at a battalion strength. I wasn't in my right mind. I actually looked forward to it with anticipation. This is what we were trained for. Uh, this was uh, why we were here. Uh, we were, and we were going to do a good job. We never had a moment's doubt. We split up into two. Uh, three companies uh, landed on the port side because uh, to take the fort and the gun emplacements and the uh, the barracks on the port. And the other three landed up the coastal ways and came in behind and climbed the mountain that had the uh, four-gun battery on top of the hill that... Uh, uh, protected the port of Arzu, or controlled it. And uh, in both facets of it, we were completely uh, successful. But nevertheless, it made you realize what you were up against if you had many of them. It was, um, it, it was a good uh, uh, introduction to combat. The landing was a complete success. I think we had three... Men killed. One of them was a lieutenant. Uh, gosh, I for, don't tell me I've forgotten his name. Gordon. Forgive me. It makes me feel bad. But anyway, that was when I received my commission. We landed on November 8th and on November 10th. I suspected it was the first battlefield commission in the European theater. I'd had to, whoever else was ahead of me had to have been awfully fast. Because that was for the 8th and the 10th, there wasn't much time in between. But at any rate, uh, he died, uh, and I became a second lieutenant. So you see, you can take that two different ways. You see, the success of a ranger-type organization is built around surprise. That was our uh, major advantage, was the complete surprise that we were supposed to uh, try to uh, attain. And we knew that we had it that night. We think that they knew that we were going to land someplace, but they didn't know where. And so they were uh, 
Well, you had some sleepy soldiers that were guarding the harbor that night, and our surprise was so complete that uh, actually it was one of the smoothest operations we've ever had. Uh, for an example, though, when you say, did, I, did we get overconfident? I think I can use my own reaction to that. The second time we landed in Sicily, uh, there was a good deal of apprehension. That first time, there was, a, there was really anticipation is what I felt. But the second time, there was some apprehension along with it because I knew that it was going to be, we couldn't always go that smoothly, and it didn't. The Americans uh, didn't purport themselves too well in the Tunisian campaign. The British were the better soldiers. They were more experienced. Uh, the Americans um, didn't have many rangers at that time. This was their first real test. And they were up against some of the crack German troops. And the German soldier was a good soldier. And they were up against some of the best. And they didn't fare too well. And probably the rangers had the only real initial success in the Tunisian campaign on the uh, Sened station raid. Oftentimes, because we were called a battalion, we were used to fill places in the lines and uh, cover retreats and stuff like that that full battalions would cover, and we were 500 men or fewer by that time. So the first real success of the Tunisian campaign came at Sened station was a ranger operation. Uh, I think it was a supply depot, power station. It was sort of a command post, the center of the command uh, for the Tunisian campaign as far as the Germans were concerned. At that time, I was a brand spanking second lieutenant commanding a platoon in A Company. We were on the left flank. I think E Company was in the middle and then F Company on the right. We were taken to a French outpost. And then we... In the dark, uh, let me say anywhere from 10 to 15 miles into the Sened station, but we actually held up in the hills overlooking the Sened station and studied it all that next day. Then that night, under the cover of darkness, is when we attacked Sened station, those three companies, probably 180 men total. But they, we advanced abreast. We didn't come one column and then another, then another, or anything like that. We were abreast. A company here, and I was on the left flank uh, with uh, explicit orders to make certain we weren't surprised from a flanking movement. Uh, we advanced in the cover of darkness and were given the orders not to return their fire if, if we were discovered. This sounds strange, but we had found out, and in our training and to the combat we had had, in the dark, defending troops always tend to fire high. And so we were not to answer their fire. And uh, we were almost within them before they knew we were there. And so they were firing way high. And the next thing you know, we were in having hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, we were completely successful. I think we lost only one man. We carried him out. There again, the element of complete surprise. So when you think of 180 men would have been the maximum, 
pulling off what they did there. It was a tremendous success. And then we had to get back, however, to our own lines at 10 or 15 miles before daybreak or they could find out how few we really were. Uh, history might prove me a liar, but I'm going to say they must have had a thousand men guarding that area. You know. The outposts, uh, they had uh, the same weapons you would expect from World War II, uh, burp guns, uh, rifles, uh, grenades, uh, this type of thing. It was too close for any artillery or any mortar or anything like that, so it was strictly hand-to-hand. Let me digress a little bit there. You know, uh, you know, a ranger hero is not supposed to have this kind of a of a reaction. When we went in there, and we let the men in there, and we got in amongst them, and we had this uh, uh, pretty, it was a fierce fighting for a while. And then the flares started flying, and so it got the brightest day, and uh, every time one of those flares would go off, well, one time when one of these flares went off and it was bright like that, this man came charging at me, my enemy, bent on killing me. But as I looked at him, I looked into his eyes, and they were big and frightened and so forth, and I froze on the trigger of my piece. I couldn't pull it. And I had a little runner who was with me because the walkie-talkies weren't always what they were cracked up to be. So we always had a runner that would be our communication with other units. And he killed him for me, or I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. That's the kind of combat, that's how close it was, that I could look into a man's eyes and freeze. Now, I hadn't frozen before that, and I, had, hadn't, I haven't frozen since, but at that time I did. What do you think it was that, uh, that sort of just paralyzed you for that moment? I don't know. It sounds noble to say perhaps compassion for a fellow human being, but I don't know it was that. I honestly don't know. My wife has told you that I have nightmares. I still do to this day. That's one of them. I look into that man's eyes. Uh, You'd be surprised how many times I've looked into his eyes since then, and I cannot tell you why I froze on the trigger at that time. But I did. And as I say, it hasn't happened since, but it happened then. I have three distinct nightmares. That's one of them. The other one is uh, on uh, Anzio Beachhead. This is the sixth campaign now on Anzio Beachhead. And we had infiltrated through the lines in two battalion strength, and we were completely surrounded by Kessel Ring's reserve forces. Had no chance. Uh, Our own troops didn't get a thousand yards out of their foxholes. And they were supposed to reach us the next day. And you probably have heard a lot about that. But anyway, as they closed in around us like that, they were dropping mortars on us. They couldn't use the artillery because they'd shoot their own men on the other side. So they were dropping mortars on us. And one exploded out here somewhere. Now, I can remember the ground coming up to hit me but I can never remember hitting the ground. And I still have that nightmare to this day, and I I haven't hit the ground yet. But it's it's one of those. I I just, other things enter into that same nightmare, but that's the basis of it. 
That gives you an idea of a couple of the nightmares that I have. They're strange. One is looking into the eyes of this guy that I couldn't kill. The other was the ground coming up to hit me, but I hadn't hit the ground. I came to in a prison camp. My wife has learned how to handle them. They come often. Uh, my system has to be right somehow. I, I think perhaps if I get overly tired... Or if I get into a, a bull session that uh, they start talking about something like this, then, then the memories come back. Otherwise, you kind of squeeze them out. But they'll come in at the most surprising moments. And there's a third nightmare that I have that I'm not going to tell you about. I, I, I don't want to even get into it. If you'll forgive me, that's a part of my uh, military life that I'm not going to talk about. Now, I would have had those nightmares three or four times a week when I first got back. And then it got uh, the first, uh, after we were married, and the first night I had a nightmare, and my wife took a hold of me, and, and I knocked her across the room. And uh, when I came to, she was under the, the sewing machine table across the room, crying, and that's when she learned never to touch me. So now, when it, she says, I make a funny sound when it's coming, and she will awaken me by calling my name over and over again. And then I come to, and then, then it's fine. And so it hasn't been nearly as serious, because she's a light sleeper, and so she can tell when they're coming. And so she wakens me before they get serious. So the last few years, they have not been that bad. Uh, this is really the reason she came with me this time. She figured because talking about it, I would probably have uh, some pretty nasty ones. It's something, uh, you know, just keeping my mouth shut for 40 years because people didn't understand or couldn't understand. It wasn't their fault. It was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. I should have been talking about it all that time. I think it would have relieved some of the whatever it builds up inside of you. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. In the case of Sicily, you'll take this as one example. Uh, the 1st and the 4th Battalions landed at Gila. The 3rd Battalion landed at uh, Lakata. The uh, Germans were expecting the 1st and the 4th Battalions to land there somehow. So they had a, a Normandy all of their own. And it was fierce fighting, and it was um, uh, fiercely contested. But the reason for the 3rd Battalion landing at Lakata was so that we could get one of those ports that would be untouched. Before we landed, uh, the, um, how do you explain this? A flat uh, barge-like vehicle uh, loaded with a whole barrage of uh, mortars. Uh, I would suspect the 4.2 type mortar, uh, the big one. And, um, it, it uh, almost not kind of, they just keep going just to, and uh, they'll lay down a barrage for you that uh, you wonder how anything can live. The naval guns usually wouldn't come in at that time. This would be close in support. And you'd land under that and they'd lift that and uh, then uh, you'd advance. At Lakata, we uh, had a pretty good surprise and we accomplished our objective. It, it was uh, defended well. But uh, we had the advantage. We were in um, three ships. Ours was a Dutch ship. I forget the name of it, but that's incidental. And they had the landing craft, LCAs they're called, and you could get uh, a platoon into each one. So you'd get 30 to 40 men in a platoon into one LCA. They'd load those, and then they'd, they'd, they'd uh, circle until they all were loaded and ready to go. Then they'd come abreast into the landing area. You have a lot of seasick rangers before you get to the landing itself. But then you forget that the minute you land. Well, from the time you get off of the uh, ship itself, it seems like uh, confusion, but it's organized confusion. And every man knows what they're doing, and... Uh, Oftentimes, you have to clamber down a netting to get to it. The, the, the LCA is already in the water, so you clamber down a netting, and you get into your position. You have already a preset position on the LCA, and um, uh, usually you'll have a, a section down each side and a section down the middle. And the uh, platoon leader will be uh, the first one off, and then the... Uh, platoon sergeant would be the last one off, seeing to it that all of them got off. And going in, of course, uh, you're, you're looking to see all the landmarks that you possibly can. I would have been, because of my position, looking to make certain that they were hitting the right landmarks and what it was going to be like when we got there, if it was like we had trained for. And so all the time, you're thinking hard. You're, you know, you're, you're Looking for landmarks, uh, you're looking for something recognizable. 
And uh, if they, you think they're going the wrong place, you tell the Navy they're going the wrong place. So you want this turned about. Uh, so you don't have time to do anything more than just think about that. Now, for the men themselves, if they would get, they had more time to think about getting seasick, and they were down, they weren't looking. Uh, it, it's quite an experience. But uh, by this time, the only ones that had a problem were the replacements that came to us. Those that had been gone through it all with you, they were the same as you were. You just, you knew what you were getting into, and you waited for uh, to hear the crunch of the uh, sound of the sand underneath your your vessel, because you knew then that as soon as it come to a stop, that uh, front ramp was going to go down, and you'd better be on the move. Because for a while, when that front ramp goes down, anything that's on the shore has only one place to aim. They don't have to search. They've got their target right now. So that is your danger point. Once you get beyond that, and if you've landed in the right spot and you haven't landed on a sandbar, uh, and you have to wade through or swim for part of it or whatever it is, then you just wade yourself ashore as fast as you can and get to the first objective. Usually the first objective also gives you a little cover. I think uh, that as far as the 3rd Battalion, which I was a part of, there was that same old nighttime firing, and they were firing high. I think they were firing over us. And you must remember that there was also a barrage that landed before we were there. And so some of those guys were shell-shocked at the time, and they weren't really thinking about what they were supposed to be doing. I think the feeling would be apprehension, wondering if you're going to be able to get through this one. Wondering about uh, when you got there, would you recognize the targets that you were looking for? Uh, somehow we always did. Somehow we always accomplished our objective. But those are the thoughts that would be running through your mind. And sometimes apprehension takes a back seat when your thought is so filled with what it is you're supposed to be doing. Fear comes afterwards after you've realized that you haven't reached your objective and wondered if you're going to get there. Then it's when the fear sets in. Apprehension is a better word about the time that tailgate goes down or that uh, front ramp goes down. We usually had the advantage of surprise, number one. So their casualties were always greater than ours. Once we got across that beach, we seldom had too many casualties then. Our casualties would come on the beach or stepping on a mine or tripping over a barbed wire and spraining an ankle. And this has happened. Um, so really, that's a hard question to answer because I think that because of the surprise of most of our landings, uh, we... Uh, initiated a lot uh, far more casualties than we received. The 3rd Battalion was so successful at Lakata that they were given the uh, chore of infiltrating through the lines, but the harbors were in bad shape, and they couldn't land the troops the next day, and they needed a harbor that was relatively untouched. So we were given the job of infiltrating through the lines, going several miles up the coast, to the west it would have been, 
uh, and taking a town called Porto Empedocle or Porto Empedicle, which I don't care how you say it. And uh, so we did that, and um, we were successful, and it was one of those nice raids that you talk about, although uh, Colonel Dammer, who was a colonel at that time, was chastised for getting out of range of communication. But we I don't know how you could have gotten that far and stayed in range. But nevertheless, uh, we were successful, and uh, we took the port, and uh, so we had the port that they needed to land the Allies. So it was uh, such a success. Uh, the real action and the real difficult part came with the 1st and the 4th Battalions at Gila. They had a Normandy of their own. It was uh, fierce, and um, all the same elements were there. The only difference was our surprise was complete and theirs was not. And so if ever we were in danger as Rangers, it was when we lost the element of surprise. We fought our way through to Palermo, then across the northern coast of Sicily, all the way by leapfrogging. Most people don't realize that the Rangers went in and then they would cut off the Germans here, then our troops would advance. And we kept doing that, and we uh, picked up uh, uh, some pack mules, and we climbed the mountain with 75-millimeter howitzers on the back of those mules uh, up a very narrow trail, and we lost a couple mules on the way, but we got to the top of this mountain overlooking Messina, and uh, we wanted to, we, we, we saw the Germans from our mountaintop going across the channel there, the two or three miles straight that separated the boot of Italy from Sicily, and we wanted to fire our 75s because we could have wreaked havoc. Instead, we fought every one of those men again in Italy. I might as well say it. I'm thinking it simply because the British had to be first in Messina. But we were in Messina and watched what they were doing and uh, watched from the top of the mountain and uh, could do nothing. That would have been one of the places where we could have really done a good job. Well, as I told you, Sicily was... uh, a great deal of apprehension. When we landed uh, on the left flank of the Salerno beachhead, now there was apprehension but laced with a great deal of fatalism. I had lived through two spearheads, two landings, and had been lucky, and I felt that somehow or another with this much under my belt that... um, This time I wouldn't be that lucky. And so I entered into that with a great deal of apprehension and a great deal of fatalism. I don't think it interfered with the job that I did or the job that I was uh, supposed to get done. But it was there. And after we had landed, here's where your training comes in handy. Although we had a lot of uh, replacements by this time. We still negotiated that uh, four or five or six thousand feet up to Shunzi Pass from the time we raided and got up there and took the pass. And then uh, I suspect you've heard we fought off. I've heard everywhere from 10 to 12 to 15 major counterattacks. 
But this landing in answer to your question was um, was more difficult from a personal standpoint because I didn't like that fatalism. I didn't like the... Uh, it wasn't defeatism. It was the fact that I didn't think I could be uh, live through three of those. That came with the next landing, the sense of detachment. That was Captain Warren Bing Evans. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, Evans recounts the battles of Monte Cassino, Anzio, and Cisterna, and describes being captured and escaping from a prisoner of war camp in Poland. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media, anywhere you listen to podcasts.